You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to Season 2 of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. Like one of my guests noted, he said, Clint, you always say that your guests are special, very special, or awesome. So I've got to come up with a different word for today's guest. I think he's just super, super cool, and we've been really good friends for a very long time. Um, and by the way, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on take a moment go over give us five stars leave some funny comments and i promise one of these days i will dedicate an entire episode to the funny comments with my own uh rebuttals to them which should be fun uh but today i've got an outdoor instructor retired navy seal graduate of the colorado mountain college avalanche science program certified avalanche field technician alpine ski patrol and a member of california's office of emergency service winter search and rescue team and obviously a very good friend best friend zach armstrong welcome to the show buddy thank you very much it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking and catching up with you. Yeah, all right. Let's not get so professional now. All right. You got to just loosen up. Is this your first interview since retiring from the Navy? No, I did. Uh, no, I did one other uh, podcast previously. You cheater. You fucking cheater. All right. Well, anyway, we're going to break you in a little bit to this whole civilian life thing, okay? We're going to start off with a rapid fire so people get to know you a little better. I'm sure you'll appreciate this. Sounds good. All right. You ready? Send it. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Free fall or paraglide? Ooh, it's a tough one. Paraglide. Paraglide. Why? And let's go through. First, it's important people know that Zach, before he retired, was actually running the free fall program for Naval Special Warfare. I'm probably rounding up and maybe, I don't know, but you were running the free fall stuff, right? I was, yeah, for three years. Uh, program director for the west coast yeah so and tell us like what is that that's like that's not the new guys but it's when platoons are doing their workup you're kind of running all those op air operations where they're jumping out of planes and all that good shit yep. right correct yeah so everyone that comes to that is um already military parachutists right and um so this is part of their unit level training and getting ready to prior to deploying overseas yeah and, okay you know, yeah, and so what is that? Two weeks or it was two weeks. How many jumps are they doing in two weeks? Uh, they were averaging probably somewhere between uh, sixteen and and thirty five over the course of two weeks. You know, a lot of that's very weather dependent, and aircraft. Um, sometimes we 
we had some some difficult conditions to deal with. Yeah. All right. And then the paraglide part, which is not a naval special warfare tool, but you do it uh, as as a hobby sport. Right. And so Correct. you yes. you you've so you've had plenty of time under canopy. You've had plenty of time free falling. Um, but paragliding you have you've fallen in love with. Right. I, I absolutely. Yeah, because I can hike up to, you know, any um mountain that provides kind of the, an open space enough to launch a paraglider or speed wing or you know other canopy and um I mean, you can stay in the air for hours right and uh i just love the challenge it's like 3d chess you know trying to figure out how to not you know miss a thermal or something and and stay in the air as long as you can yeah so i've heard about i think it was either you or someone was telling me like there's like a you can go from like Vegas to like San Diego, just jumping from thermal to thermal and staying, staying in the air the entire time, right? Yeah, some guys have done some pretty long distance flights, launching in San Diego and going uh, nearly to Vegas uh, out there in like Blythe area uh, near the state line for sure. But I think you know you you introduced paragliding to me years before i actually started flying do you remember that no i don't <laughs> i don't remember much but well, yeah go ahead <laughs> I, I think you were the first one to take note of the uh the x alps like the oh. first year the x alps ever happened and you're like hey we should go do this race and right and the x alps is a race through europe that uh they use they That's right. have to fly or hike and yeah you were, they were like oh we should do this race and i was like ah it's just I didn't know much about it, and it just seemed like a nearly impossible challenge at the time. And now I look back, I'm like, dang, we should have got into that sooner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was you basically carry some stuff, and uh, you just go from mountain to mountain across. It was across the Alps, right? Yeah, I forgot the start and the stop, but man, it de definitely looked like a badass race. Um, well, now it's, it's matured right into its own its own i mean international World. event that people look forward to every two years damn yeah we yeah. definitely got to get back on that because yeah. uh, now we're old we're old and faster and smarter <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> um all right so yeah free fall versus paraglide you pick paraglide and i agree i mean it's like you just get that canopy time and it but so tell tell like someone who's never paraglided before like what is it about it that makes it so damn cool it's got to be about the closest thing to actually flying, right? Because it's it's quiet. I mean, the only thing you really have is the wind. Maybe you have a couple instruments that provide some feedback, you know, some audio feedback. But really, it's just you up there and you, you actually look at birds that are circling in thermals and, you know, you can go chase after them and kind of fly around the air the way the birds do. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, okay. Run or swim? Ooh, another good one. I'll say run. Run? Why? I just enjoy like um, being able to see as much as I can see under my own power, right? And so like running through the mountains or through the desert or something, just you get to, if you know, if you can run, you can go see a lot of things in a shorter amount of time. Yeah, well, and, and I'm most better team... at Better at it, exactly. I, I do. I get a lot more out of running than I do swimming and Plus, I mean, swimming involves getting wet and you're cold, and I don't like that either anymore. I have an aversion to water these days. Right, exactly. I tell people all the time, like, see, you know, there's there are plenty of seals that love being in the water, 
But after 20 years, most of us are like hydrophobic. We're like, fuck that, unless it's 115 degrees, then I'll get in it, right? Totally. Or and, or if it's fresh water, I'll take fresh water over salt water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fresh water is nicer. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay. Um, government life or civilian life now that you are a fresh new civilian? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'll say civilian. Um, yeah. 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 I, you know, I absolutely loved, uh, what I did, like no regrets, but, um, I don't know that I'd repeat it necessarily. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You do your time and, uh, you get to check a lot of cool ass boxes. I mean, let's face it. We get paid to do things that most people pay to go do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But when you get out, you kind of almost realize, whoa, there's this all this whole other world out here that I've been missing out on because we live in like this little bubble, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I But, you yeah. know, I mean, made some unbelievable like lifelong friends, right? Like such as yourself, other guys, um, yeah. those experiences and the things that, you know, trials and tribulations that we go through is like what makes that job um, so appealing. And yeah. I really, I really enjoyed the work. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of gratification, satisfaction stuff that's checked off in the military because I mean, the way it's designed, I know I've got a lot of friends in the corporate world that they don't, they don't like it. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, they make great money, but when you think about the military, it's structure and design, you know, you work, you make rank, whereas in the corporate world or in other occupations, there is no rank. So, you know, or you work and you get rewarded, you know, in the military there, I mean, as much as we take the medals on our chest for granted, like I never cared about any of that shit, but there is that sense of like, okay, you know, recognition because you get, you got this, you know, this stupid piece of metal and ribbon that you wear on your chest. And it means absolutely nothing when you get out, by the way, but when you're in, you're like, yeah, I got a bronze star. It's fucking cool. Huh? (laughs) And then you get like five more and you're like, oh, okay, I guess a fuck about this shit anymore. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, don't you agree? It's like you get the military has this system that, you know, keeps you there. It's like carrots almost. But we're oh, yeah. in the corporate world, they, they, you know, out here in the mil- in the civilian world, there ain't shit. They just kind of like, you know, they're, they don't really have anything to uh, strive for as much other than the dollar sign, which we're not getting in the military. Sure. Yeah. No, 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 no. If you're, um, if you're looking to make a lot of money, uh, special operations is not the place to, to do that. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, next one overseas or home. Cool. Another good one. Clint. Yeah. I know, um, Cause you lived in Germany for uh, a while. What's it? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I'll say home. Um, I'll say home. I've, I did live overseas a couple different times. Uh, throughout my Navy career, right? Um, I was in Greece in the late 90s. And then I was yeah. in Germany um, toward the end of my career and really enjoyed both of those experiences um, quite a bit. Um, but right now, I'm really, really enjoying uh, being here in the States and and kind of exploring new terrain and new um, places that I just have never had the opportunity to go see up until now. Right now, I have a lot more free time. And so I'm really enjoying the area that I'm exploring right now. Yeah. Now, the first time you went overseas, Greece, you were you were single, right? I was. Yeah. How was that? 
That was a good experience, man. That was, like I said, <laughs> late 90s. Hey, at the time, it was the vacation spot for all of uh, Northern Europe, right? All of Scandinavia. So it was um, yeah, part of Central Discotech every, every night of the week. Yeah. You were in there. You, yeah. You were in there discoing, huh, Zach? Yeah. A little cool frisky. Yeah. I was, um, <laughs> Well, now like Greece is like imploded, right? I mean, what the hell happened to its currency and what, what happened? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the EU had a lot to do with some of that, and just the way they manage or govern their themselves had a, you know, some to do with that as well. But uh, that's right. I forgot when the EU formed, it kind of yeah. bankrupt a couple of different countries because they didn't. They were, you know, that they operated great by themselves, but as soon as they were part of a bigger union, then it they kind of fell apart. Yeah, I think they're under some pressure. And, and you know, the first time I lived there, it was uh, drachma was the currency. And then, of course, you know, going back later, it was, you know, the euro. So, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Seeing both sides. So then you went to Germany. Where were you? Germany was uh, a three year. Is that how long you did? It, it was three. I had. Yeah, uh, yeah I had deployed there um, prior to just prior to actually moving there to take that job. Yeah, and I don't think people know, but you know, the SEAL community has units around the globe, and some guys get the lucky opportunity to fill billets at these units. And Germany is probably like the best one out of all of them, right? I mean, you got Germany, and I think you got one in Bahrain. That that kind of sucks, but <laughs> Germany's like the like the good one to go to, right? Yeah, I, I mean, for most people, it is. You know, there was maybe a guy or two that that didn't have uh, quite as good of an experience, but I think they, they were probably a little bit younger, maybe hadn't traveled as much and, and just didn't have that itch. Um, they were kind of yeah. missing home, but, uh, but for the most part, like everyone really, really enjoyed that tour, you know, again, made more lifelong friends during that uh, time over there. Yeah. Yeah, because you're kind of in the, you're kind of in it together, just like a platoon. Yeah, in a foreign country, just you know, even though it's Germany, you're uh, you're still trying to figure it out and get by, right? Yeah, absolutely, right. So everyone kind of has to rely on each other. It makes for kind of close knit family, close knit command that like everyone helps each other out and and um, you know partic like spends their free time together and goes on ski trips together and does all these things. So it's cool. Yeah. Not a bad place to be. Now, tell tell everyone, like, why do we have, why does Naval Special Warfare SEAL teams have these units around the globe? I mean, what, what was like, the, what's the what's the main open source function of these damn things? Sure. So, right, we have, I mean, no secret, we have guys, SEAL teams that deploy around the world. Um, those places that they, they deploy to require a, quite a bit of logistical support and, um it, as well as uh, kind of organizing exercises with partner forces, right? Our counterparts that we are allies with uh, globally. And so it helps to have someone forward staged in these theaters, if you will, like the European theater that can uh, manage those relationships, manage logistics and kind of uh, carry um, the theater commander's, you know, vision of how to, uh, interact with our allies yeah what was your what was your favorite partner force did you have a favorite uh well so i mean i was the nordic uh engage country engagement officer and uh worked with the norwegians and the danes 
quite a bit. I love both of them. Um, spent, yeah. you know, a lot of time with both of those folks and, and they're really, really good people. Yeah. Are they pretty hardcore units? I mean, are they, do you feel like partner nations, especially in the EU are trying to keep up with us or do you feel like they're on par with, you know, us special operation talent or are they above us better at better than us? What do you, what, what was your kind of general sense? Sure. Um, I mean, at this point, right, a lot of uh, with coalition forces helping in Iraq and Afghanistan for as long as they have, they've also developed into, you know, very experienced you know, commands and, and units as themselves. Right. And so uh, in particular with the I'll say both the Norwegians and the Danes, they are they're they're on par with our capabilities, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty and, cool. Well, I mean, they've, and what they've done is they've modeled everything that they do off of, you know, us SOCOM um, policies and guidelines. And so they're, you know, they, they look just like us. Yeah. Well, I think that's the goal, right? I mean, you get into combat situations and you want everybody to, you know, I know that I can grab, you know, his magazines and they work in my rifle. Right. Yeah, I mean, totally. And then, yeah. So I'm guessing their equipment, their technology, most of it is, kind of us right uh for the most part you know they they do develop some proprietary uh equipment right um but they definitely took lessons learned from you know us socom and uh, our experiences over the last two decades and yeah you know they're they're great partners to work with they have to be better in the snow than us right <laughs> i i would say the norwegians are are pretty proficient <laughs> yeah i would hope so yeah in a winter environment <laughs> for sure yeah they're living that shit all the time i think God. they're born with you know little skis on their feet when they coming out <laughs> yeah i bet <laughs> you're listening to can you survive this podcast thanks for tuning in please make sure to subscribe rate and share on the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows Yeah, I, I can't imagine like skiing with them. They're probably they're pretty badass, right? I, I mean, every kid is growing up that way before they even get into special operations, right? Oh yeah, they're phenomenal skiers. Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, hell, some of them depend on where they grow up, right? They end up having to ski to school, and you know, damn, like that's that cool. Winter, it's a, it's a mode of transportation, not just um, a recreational hobby. They do, huh? Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. I'm sure not cool for them, but to us on the outside looking in they're like wow you go to school on skis <laughs> yeah they're probably like yeah yeah fucking blows <laughs> <laughs> um all right uh the wife or the boys oh come on now <laughs> come on be honest wife or the boys wife or the boys well i love hanging out with i love hanging out with the boys um the boys got it okay why <laughs> well, because they're, you know, they they love hanging out with doing the things that I like to do. Um, yeah, right. Like they're they're every bit is fascinated with the outdoors and and learning how to be do all these things that I do um, at much younger age than I learned to do it. Right, and so they're uh, I can't wait to see what they do as they come into their their own. You know, like they're gonna be so much more proficient at all these things that I've worked really hard you know, to yeah. get decent at over the years. Now, one of them is like entered into some downhill racing and is actually doing really good, right? Yeah. He just, he actually just 
placed a podium yesterday and <laughs> it's not that he wasn't trying, but he just doesn't necessarily understand like um, racing technique. Right. And so, yeah. I mean, he's just out there skiing the way he learned how to ski. You know, he grew up skiing, uh, learned how to ski in the Alps uh, while we were over there. Right. And ha- with a German lady, like yelling at him, like <laughs> how to, you know, totally <laughs> German style. So, you know, now he's just skiing and he, he took second. And so I think, if the interest Holy is there, you know, yeah. I would love to actually get him some instruction on racing. So he develops a racing technique, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's just doing it based on his own intuition and yeah. Yeah. He hasn't had any of those capabilities like honed in on and, you know, had him focus. Right. So fuck. Yeah. yeah he's going to be quite competitive. Dude, that's awesome. And I mean, and, 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 and for the listeners, this is, you're up in Montana. So he's, he's actually racing against, you know, yeah. Oh yeah. Most, most of the kids that he's, uh, on the team with have been, you know, grew up ski racing, you know, he's about to turn 12 and they've been ski racing since they've been skiing. Right. And so he's, he's pretty competitive to be coming into this, uh, new. Yeah, man. Yeah. He's hopefully he takes it seriously. He could, you can go to the Olympics with that kind of skill set. Um, okay, here's one. You'll love this one. Toilet or drawer? Toilet or drawer? Yeah, well, a toilet <laughs> or a drawer. I'm not sure where that's going, but uh, I'll choose drawer. <laughs> drawer, yes. That's the one. I mean, so, you, you, you know, it's, of course, I know you and your wife really well. And I remember her telling me a story about one night where you woke up in the middle of the night. Instead of making it to the toilet, you went ahead and uh, went to the drawer. I think it was like her sock drawer or something. <laughs> <laughs> and and went ahead and filled the drawer up instead of filling the toilet up. I now, what, well may have done that. Were you super tired or or had you been drinking or what's your oh, excuse? I'm sure I had probably been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> now, now this leads to the next one. Um you know, so yeah, you picked a drawer over your wife, which is probably good. Oh no, the toilet. So yeah, now wife or drawer? Which which one do you go with there? The drawer or the wife? Jeez. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> now I see where this is going. Because I think wife you've peed drawer? on her too, right? Oh, Did you pee on her once, once or twice? You've peed all I, over her, I think. I I I may be guilty of that. <laughs> and then of course the last one is clint or drawer oh here we go <laughs> well i have to choose clint at that point yes because you have peed all over me too <laughs> um and that's always a fun story you have to pull the fun stories out when mike was on the show we had to talk about me digging digging poop out of his constipated ass so of oh, course boy. we're going to uh talk about the new the new story that hopefully will go viral is how Zach likes to pee on Clint. And of course, <laughs> after he's done peeing all over me in, the, in my sleep, he goes and sleeps on the floor and leaves me to lay in the pee for the rest of the night, which was really very friendly of you. <laughs> of course, I wake up in the morning. I'm like, how the fuck did I get all wet? <laughs> and then I look around and you're you're curled up in the fetal position on the floor. And uh I think there was quite a bit yeah. of booze involved with that one. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Um so yeah, obviously for all you listeners, I've me and Zach known each other like twenty plus years, probably getting closer to thirty years. I don't know. I haven't done the math, but 
Um, we ended up doing, uh, so yeah, that's the end of your rapid fire, <laughs> Yes, <maybe>. but we've, <clears throat> we've known each other for a while and did a couple of deployments together. Um, you know, and I've, I've always said it on here. Like, I don't remember much. Do you, I have a hard time. Like, remember what, what is your most memorable moments that we've had together overseas? Are there any standout ones that I've probably forgotten? Oh, I mean, those are, those are the memories that I do retain, right? Like I have a more issues uh remembering maybe more recent things but like those those events uh especially a time with you know you glenn matt um those are the the moments that i definitely remember chris even um yeah i you know i definitely remember you and i sitting in the back of the humvee you know as we're driving through iraq you know invading iraq and um just just yeah. laughing about random things that van was doing up front or who, you know, Shane was doing up front <laughs> yeah. and like just ridiculous stuff that we always found, you know, to be funny and other folks yeah. like maybe didn't enjoy that experience as much, but we would always giggle about it. Right. Yeah. I, I think it, it, that it, that does bring up a good point. So, you know, our second deployment together or what maybe it was our first i don't know i don't remember i get them all mixed up but i um you know i was in a an, 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 an unfortunate leadership position and the comms guy that we had right he was the primary and you know we're in the middle of you know basically starting a war and pushing up highway one in iraq and um and he was just I can't remember what he was doing, but he just wasn't doing his job. So we like fired him on the spot. We're like, all right, yeah. you're fucking done. You were the secondary comms guy. And were you, were, were you a new guy? I, you, I was. That, I was. Your, I first, was first. your first deployment was yeah. pushing into Iraq. Yeah. 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 Fuck. Yeah. I forget about that. You lucky little fucker. Um, so first deployment, you're pushing into Iraq. You're a new guy. And now we're what? But just a couple of days in, the primary comms guy who just wasn't making comms, you know, and keep in mind for those listening, you're you're surrounded by, you know, other U.S. forces when you're, you know, basically pushing into a country. And it's it was probably the closest thing to I, I hate to compare things to like World War Two, but it was really the closest thing because it's not like we were going back each night to an FOB and you know, getting Starbucks and getting a good night's rest or, you know, had weight rooms or flat screens, you know, in our little, uh, you know, platoon spaces, we were sleeping underneath our vehicles every night. And in some aspects, it was very much just, you know, very rogue maverick lifestyle cruising the Iraqi countryside doing what we were told. But, um, so yeah, it's important to kind of note that because that lends to how important it is that a comms guy do his job because there's no like, Hey, I need this radio fixed or we need to go pick up extra batteries or there's no excuses. There was no excuses. You had, we had to make comms with the Marines and other forces so that essentially they, they, when we, we rolled into different areas, they didn't shoot at us. Right. I mean, is that the extent of it? Yeah, I mean, um, you remember that. I mean, some of the biggest threats, to be quite honest, were were friendly, you know, blue on blue events because it was so chaotic, right? There's people, there's yeah. units, conventional units, you know, special operations folks running all over the place doing, you know, kind of all these different things. And uh, I don't know that uh, we realized that the major oversight in regards to communications and how like the 
you know, different systems that the Marines use, vice the Navy, vice Army. I mean, it was um, pr- very dynamic, right? Si- you know, situation. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, the main comms guy couldn't figure it out. And then so you got put in the position and you started figuring it out. And what was the big thing? It was like crypto, right? Like we just we all ha- were running different crypto or. Well, the yeah, I, I mean, you know, in particular with the Marines, we eventually what out of Baghdad got attached to the Marines because we provided that uh, we were able to do move forward of the law of the front. Right. Remember, and we were doing some recce, yeah. some bridges that they wanted info on so they could move their heavy vehicles. That's right. That's right. right. And so um, but the problem was we just had the same radios, but they were utilizing, I believe, Singars or something. And I mean, we were on a I think at a time we were the only ones in country with like a 25K dedicated satellite. Right. <laughs> oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I forgot about that. Yeah, we were pretty lucky. We had dedicated satellite and then we were expecting everyone else to probably kind of be on the same sheet of music with us right yeah i don't know i don't know what we thought was going to happen but <laughs> you know once we realized like wow we really need to figure this out i went and spent quite a bit of time with the marines uh to to figure out how they run on singars because certainly uh we couldn't fit all them on our satellite right and so um for us to flex to and they were a much bigger unit than we were yeah so yeah, yeah. for us to flex to their um you know comms architecture was way easier than than the other way around right okay that's a good refresher singars i have i don't think i've heard that since the time you were sitting next to me in the fucking humvee going hey they're on singars i'm like well i don't know what that what is that (laughs) it's like just figure it out (laughs) yeah and of course you figured it out and got us back up and running again and um and the other guy was all mad <laughs> for the rest of the deployment <laughs> but hey you don't do your job you get fired and there's something to learn from that um okay so yeah the uh the other thing that you just refreshed my mind on was the how small a world it really like the general kelly aspect of it i mean remember we were working for a for a colonel kelly in iraq you know and here's a guy that became a general obviously became a very popular general and then worked under trump trump eventually fired all his marine generals but you know kelly obviously a very stand-up guy and um god i mean i thought he was kind of cool the limited interaction we had with him on the battlefield and he was also the first pretty sure he was the first flag officer to be promoted uh from from colonel to general in combat uh, since like the Korean War or something, uh, oh, like wow. it was really yeah, super cool. Like kind of you know, obviously a small world of of all of us on the ground, and then for him to kind of escalate all the way up to uh, the positions he's held since then, it's pretty cool. But we met him, you know, with gunfire going around, and here's this dude, this Marine officer standing there, like, "Hey guys, I'm glad you're here. We really could use your help. Uh, there's some bad guys over there. We need you to go kill them." And I, and he shook all our hands. He looked us all in the eyes, and he turned around and walked away. And it was like, "Whoa, you know, you you wouldn't find a uh, a Navy uh, a SEAL officer of that rank hanging out like in gunfire like that." You know what I mean? It was just sure. really surreal, where, wasn't it? Where was that? That you see, these are the every that you know better than I do. I was so. This was just south of Anasaria. Okay. Yeah, Jessica Lynch was held up in that hospital. Yeah. 
and we were uh we had just rolled in and um yeah, he came out and he said his two cents to us. And he was the one that was basically like, there's a town over there called Suckass. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but we've been calling it Suckass population 80,000. And well, anyway, we need you guys to go over there and kill everybody. <laughs> well, I remember that actually. We, yeah. we, we, we uh, went over to that bridge. We ended up blowing up some technical vehicles, you know, right. Remember that? We Oh yeah. Blew up yeah, some yeah, vehicles yeah, yeah. and stuff over there and found a cache under the bridge of rpgs or something mortars right that blew all that up too yeah and there was like used rubbers laying there we're like well, I wonder if they were if these soldiers were just banging each other or what because remember it was like rpgs and a bunch of used rubbers <laughs> and they had just like you could tell they just must have saw us coming and ran away you know or yeah right it was some kind of yeah, strange they even like wrecked their you know kind of trash their vehicle or wrecked their vehicle when they they were trying to back up and it got stuck or something. They just left it and so we blew it up. Yeah, we blew it up. That was pretty funny. Just running around blowing shit up. That was cool. We will be right back after the break. So, yeah, that uh, did some deployments together. Um, let's get more into what you've been doing um, since now that you're out. You know, you've kind of gone down this uh i'm just gonna round it up is like kind of really becoming an expert in you know the winter side of mountaineering you were already an expert at kind of mountaineering and climbing and you've been doing it your whole life obviously you were our lead climber and anything anytime it came to you know ropes and knots and all that shit you were the you were the guy we we leveraged in the in the platoons um but since then now you're out and you're kind of going down this you know um, mountaineering avalanche sure. ski rescue stuff. So kind of give everybody a background in what you've been doing and, and, and then how that applies to kind of like this career path you're on. Sure. No, absolutely. So, you know, kind of specializing in, in winter, I specialized in winter warfare about the last half of last decade of my career. Right. Uh, yeah. Ended up, ended up on the East coast, uh, ended up doing, <clears throat> being on the hook for some winter Europe, Europe deployments. And, um, we knew we'd be working with, you know, Norwegians and other people that are proficient in that environment. So we, you know, started doing, um, training in preparation to, to have some level of proficiency with those guys. Right. And so, uh, what that kind of morphed into was as I was, you know, when I, while I was in Europe, I kind of came across uh, ski patrol. They had, they have a European division for national ski patrol, oddly enough. And I thought, Oh, that's cool. You know, like I'm going out quite a bit. Maybe I need some additional medical training to kind of keep guys safe, you know, in case someone gets hurt or know how to get them out of there. Um, Cause we were doing a lot of this stuff on our free time as well. And then, um, and that was great. And then I kind of realized I had this epiphany, you know, in regards to avalanches, like, man, I've been climbing for almost 30 years. I've probably gotten lucky, you know, like the, the winter environment or avalanche conditions are a feedback poor environment, right? You generally don't know you made a mistake until it's maybe too late. Yeah. And so, um, that just kind of was eye opening to me when I kindly, kind finally realized, um, the significance of that. And I thought, well, I need to maybe professionalize some of this stuff so that I haven't, as I was developing my exit strategy, right. For retirement. And, uh, so came back, came back to the States 
and applied for, came across, I was really just looking for my, um, my American Avalanche Association Pro Level 1, uh, right? So, you know, in America, we've kind of emulated the Canadian model where we have a recreational and a professional um, track for avalanche education. And mm. so I was looking for my Pro 1, came across this avalanche science program, uh, tried to get in. It had already started. This was like fall of 18. It had already started. And they said, you know, we can't submit you, you know, let you attend late into this uh, program. You know, you can apply next year. And so I did. I got accepted. It's a two-year program. Hmm. Um, and it just kind of seemed like another way to to help people, right? Like maybe in regards to mitigating avalanches, helps keep people safe, um, you know, provide an avalanche forecast can help inform people to help keep them safe, right? R mitigate their risk um, exposure. And so I just thought, cool, here's another kind of industry where I can, you know, do things to maybe expose myself a little bit, but in order to help keep other people safe. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's like you're continuing your service, really. I think we all have our form of that. You, uh, you serve for so long and then you kind of end up falling into a position where you continue to serve. I mean, like with me with Escape the Wolf, as you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, you're providing, you know, all this crisis management stuff to folks. And it's not until later you realize, wow, it's kind of like it's just inevitable that we go these paths, you know, and even this podcast is all about educating folks, you know, in a, in a hopefully an entertaining way sure. um, of like you know, the do's and don'ts, no matter uh, what you may face in life, which is why we have the, you know, survival scenario, which you will be failing miserably here pretty soon. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but okay, so now that we're in the middle of winter, we're in the middle of the ski and snowboard season, you know, and now with all this knowledge that you've and experience, you've kind of, what, what would you say, you know, hey, what are the top three gear items besides the skis and the snowboards and your helmet and, you know, all the things you're going to have on you anyway, that you would recommend to anybody, you know, going out there and, and having fun during this, uh, this time of year. Sure. Well, I mean, if you're ever going to step into the backcountry, you absolutely have to have a beacon shovel and probe, right? Like, because if you, um, say that again, a beacon, a, a beacon, an avalanche beacon or transceiver, right. And so yep. send shovel signals. And then um, a shovel because I have to be able shovel. to be out, right? So the beacon lets me find you. The probe yep. uh, actually lets me find you as well, right? So if I once I acquire your signal, then I use the probe to actually get a physical strike on wh whoever's buried, and then the shovel, you know, allows me to dig them out. Okay, so now do you recommend the average person have some kind of shovel on them? Is that what you're saying? Um. You know, potentially, um, you know, inbounds avalanches, although rare, do and, and have occurred and have there have been inbounds avalanche fatalities. Right. And so, yeah. uh, you know, don't ever take it for granted that um, if the ski patrollers, they do a great job at mitigating those hazards within the resort boundaries. But sometimes they just can't get a reaction through, you know, explosive work or whatever their mitigation processes are. Sometimes they're still, you know um potential to trigger an avalanche inbounds 
So what's the, you know, going back to the beacon part, what's kind of like the, the easy button people, you know, is that something you can get off Amazon? What do you recommend as far as beacons? No, I mean, any, most major, you know, manufacturers of outdoor equipment, uh, whether it's, you know, Black Diamond, Ortovox, Mammut, um, there's a couple others. They all make these avalanche beacons and they all, they make all the avalanche safety equipment that you could want to buy. So this is separate. It's not like a, a Garmin GPS can provide no. what you're talking about. No, these are specific items that are, you know. Okay. Yeah, dedicated. All right. So the beacon, the shovel. I, I think that's actually a great idea because you look at it like a med kit, right? The med kit I carry isn't for me. Right. Most people think, you know, hey, you know, no, the med kit. No, the med kit you carry is for your buddy, right? So I'm getting that backwards, but hopefully that makes sense because, <laughs> and, and we all carry it in the same position so that when I go down, they can use that med cut either on myself or on the other guy that's gone down with me. Right. I mean, it's yeah. like, so you carry it in the same position and your med kit is to be used on you or the buddy next to you, just depending on the situation. But so the shovel, could you look at it the same way? I mean, like, so you, you end up. You have it on you because your buddy could be the one up buried, not necessarily you, because a shovel you're carrying doesn't necessarily do you any good, right? Right. Yeah. The shovel. The shovel is for, for me, right? It's for my buddy, and it's yeah. There we go. Okay. Just like the med kit, it's one of those things yeah. that you carry and you just hope you never have to use. Right. right. Ideally, you have it and you never use it, but you yeah. need to be proficient right. with it, right? And yeah. so you need to practice and and do all those things. Get some education and understand the hazards and then what about the the person that gets lost what what are some of the things you want to make sure you always have in your pack that you know that most people probably don't think about is there sure. any other cool yeah. little no that's great yeah. we had uh requirements uh through the avalanche science program to you know be able to package an injured partner and then you know, and, or be able to spend the night out in the field. And, and so I always took the approach of like, well, what happened if you had to do both? Right now I have to package, you get hurt. I have to package you up in, in, you know, a thermal blanket or a bivy sack or whatever. And, you know, kind of, I'm not going to unpackage you because, yeah. the, because the tarp I used is our emergency shelter as well. So I would always have a, a, a way to get us out of the weather if we had to spend the night. Right. And so, yeah. you know, um, any kind of, any kind of, uh, emergency bivy, um, you know, there's those really light, like foil ones, but to be honest for the weight, just a little bit additional weight. There's actually some other products out there that are, that are pretty good. Um, they are like reusable, right? I would say those thermal, those little, you know, orange and silver blankets are, um, a one-time use, which is fine. Again, it's one of those, if you never want to use it, but it certainly can help. In fact, last week I spent the night outside, it got down to 16 degrees and I slept in a bivy sack, one of those emergency bivy sacks with reflective coating and just a 32 degree sleeping bag. No, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were obviously wearing, were you wearing warmies or did you strip down? Um, no, I had, I had puffy, puffy pants and jacket and, and a ground yeah. pad, you know, a ground pad is something that these days they, most of them don't weigh more than a pound. Right. But they can uh, insulate you from getting, losing all that heat through contact with the ground for a night. You know? Yeah. So what's so your minimum, your minimum, you're going to carry a ground pad. You're going to carry some kind of bivy. 
ideally one that has that reflective material inside so it it just keeps the heat right yeah it helps yeah it helps a little yeah sometimes i look at that shit and i'm like is that real i mean come on so it's got a shiny uh, surface it, on the inside and... it helps it helps it helps <laughs> oh, okay i guess anything is you know is worth it when you're talking about those types of temperatures for the night um what are, are there any other tricks as far as staying warm Sure. I mean, if you have the means to boil water, you can certainly boil water in a, into an algae or a water bottle and stick that either between your legs or uh, down at your feet. And that can help. I mean, that water bottle stay warm for, you know, large portion of the night before it finally cools off. If you have oh, yeah. to insulate it, you know, inside something. Right. Right. So you'd like any of those jet boils, right? It's sure. kind of, yeah, just something that heats up water really fast and then you dump the water into your, some kind of container and yeah. then use that as a heat source. Uh, and are you doing like igloos and all those kind of like, what do you call that? Like primitive type shelter? Sure. Oh yes, you know, survival shelter, snow shelter, whatever. Um, yeah, I've done a bit of snow caves. Um, there's some other, you know, methods you can do but if the snow is deep enough yeah you can do a snow cave if the snow's not you can uh, pile up snow right and kind of create a quasi hut and dig it out and um, a snow cave will generally stay somewhere around 30 degrees hmm. and regardless of what it's doing outside yeah and when you're building a snow i'm always curious about this you you pile it up and then do you have to pack it you know, do you want it tight before you start digging into it and creating your cave? Or, I mean, what's well, the Well, if you have to pile here? up your own snow, right, just through the action of moving that snow into a pile, you've, cre you've created heat, right, because you're yep. tossing around. So it'll set up pretty pretty well. Um, if the snow's deep enough and you can simply just dig in a cave, you don't need to pack anything. Um, we did some pretty extensive snow caves in Norway, you know, up above the Arctic Circle uh, over the years. And, hell, you can fit eight guys into one there's snow drifts are so big and so you're literally just digging into the into the snow yeah at an angle or just straight down or what's um, the trick you know you you like to look for uh drifted places where the snow tends to be deeper and, and you go you definitely want to go in and then up because um cold air sinks right and so we want to create a cold sink so that uh, we're not sitting in that cold air. So you, wherever hmm. your sleeping platform is, you want it higher than, say, the entrance to your cave. Ah, got it. Okay. That's pretty cool, huh? And then what are your, like, safety precautions if the shit fucking, if it caves in on you? <laughs> yeah, that's a consideration, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, you can do things like you can wear your avalanche beacon and you can leave it on. Um uh, you know, you, you don't want to have walls that are too thin, uh, that they do collapse. Cause it actually, if you carve it out too thin, it could collapse with additional snow, but snow, actually, if you do like inside, if you dome it out, you know, that shape, uh, from an architectural point of view is, is really strong, right? Like a dome. And so oh, yeah, yeah. dome out the inside and it'll support all, you know, some, some of them you can walk across the top of them. I wouldn't recommend oh, that, yeah. but. <laughs> you could yeah. do it yeah yeah and then is there a difference between like um a heavily you know veg area versus a big open area of snow if you had your choice you do it in the trees do your man cave or your man cave your your cave or your or out in the open i mean uh, like which it, snow know, do you pick sure it depends i mean if you have a huge open area right we call that a long fetch and that can that's a great place for a lot of snow to 
to be transported or picked mm-hmm. up and transported. Um, but really, you kind of want to find a place where that that snow is going to collect right on the leeward side of maybe a little ridge or um, some trees that kind of slow the winds, abate the winds a little bit and, and let that snow settle back down. Um, so it it just kind of depends on the scenario. But any kind of rolling terrain will have drifts that should work, should suffice. Hmm. And when you say drifts, the indicator for that is the kind of snow where you almost looks like you can see the wind is blown on top of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, yeah. and so on the leeward aspects, you can see kind of some cornices maybe start to grow, you know, the snow's overhanging, or it looks like waves or whale backs, you know, coming out of, yeah, those yeah, are all yeah, being yeah. drifted. Okay. Right, right. So you're using all this, this whole other language, this terminology you're using. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Now, the winter warfare, let's bust some myths. Are you crew like winter warfare? Are we are we on skis with, you know, automatic weapons and just shooting the fucking terrain going 60 miles an hour down a hill or what? I mean, is that what we do? <laughs> like what? In the Bond movie? <laughs> yeah yeah is that, is that is that that's winter warfare right i mean yeah, we're on yeah, skis totally. with automatic weapons right i i mean we, you know you take those things out but you know actually shooting while skiing like that is is probably not happening right we're just making movement <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think people think oh wow that's got to be cool right it's like you know for the longest time it was like the north korea threat you know you that's why seals did winter warfare hell now you got russia and I mean, we got a lot of other threats besides North Korea uh, giving us reason to be really good at winter warfare. Um, but what is what would you say really? What is winter warfare like compared to you know more of what we're used to the typical land warfare uh, where the sun is shining? I mean, what would you say the you know the biggest issue is there between sure. or the biggest difference? Sure, we um, we actually just ran a course for some guys. Uh, we literally yeah. wrapped it up yesterday. And so, uh, they spent a couple of weeks, honestly, just learning to like live in the environment, you know, it, yeah. it's just, um, we've spent so much time, you know, fighting over the last two decades in other places that, uh, they've, we've maybe lost touch with all those nuances of like, you can get away with a lot for an overnight, right? Like you can basically get away with anything in an overnight. But yeah. once you go out there for an extended period of time, you know, multiple days, you have to manage uh, things way differently. Yeah. And you're talking food, water, warmth, right? Yeah. It, you know, certainly um, managing like your perspiration, like sweating and managing how you deal with, uh, you know, boots that are potentially sweat, you know, wet overnight. And so you're not putting on frozen boots in the morning, right? Because then yeah. that leads to cold injuries and, all these things exacerbate the more you can't just blow stuff off. You actually have to actively uh, mitigate or uh, manage those issues. What's the trick for the boots? You're just doing hot water bladders and shoving them in your boots while you sleep or how do you... No, I mean, I'll generally sleep with my boots in my sleeping bag and, and try to the liner and try to dry the liner out. Oh, just put them in there with you. Yeah. 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 Your body heat, body heat. Yeah, yeah. Body heat can do a lot of cool things, right? Like I'll put my socks on my shoulders at night and, you know, change out of my socks, first of all. So I wear a different pair in my sleeping bag than I ski with. And then I'll yeah. try those ski socks out on my shoulders overnight. Right. 
Yeah, because that's where all the heat's coming out. Yeah, when you're yeah. Well, it's just and it's just convenient spot. Yeah, look for them the next day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're not wadded up in a little ball down in the dark somewhere. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Now the guns, right? They're rifles. Rifles uh, tend to act a little differently when you get extreme cold, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you can't. um, For example, once like we have a saying like once the gun's cold, leave it cold. Yeah. Right. Because as soon as you bring it, say, from outside into your tent, any moisture that's on that's going to condensate as it heats up. And yeah. then once that freezes again, now you have, say, condensation, frozen condensation on your optics, or, you know, there's all sorts, a slew of problems that can arise from, you know, letting your weapon warm up once it's cold. So once it's cold, leave it cold. Yeah, but so that means it just stays on the outside of my sleeping gear, but my hands are still. I mean, how do you manage that weapon? I wouldn't even. Um, I mean, I wouldn't even bring it in my tent. And I know that's uh, should, huh? different, right? From like probably what guys are used to. Like guys are used to like sleeping with their gun. Yeah, you never let it out of your sight. Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just it's there's just different things that you have to uh, take in consideration in that environment. Yeah, so you got guys. But I mean, I think it's important to note there's always going to be at least a couple guys on watch, you know, of through course. the night. Yeah. So it's not like you got a bunch of guns laying out on the outside of a snow cave, you know, for, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's important to note there's always somebody on watch, probably two guys, and uh, the weapons are always being looked out for, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm sure you're thinking about that middle of the night uh you know immediate action drill right to a certain degree so i'm sure guys are kind of still tactically setting everything up and making sure that they can respond properly are there any tricks in that i mean or is it just um it is what it is no i mean it just kind of it is what it is you know a thing that would help is just kind of try to be set all of your stuff up so that you are as prepared as possible to to react if that situation arises, right? That I don't know, maybe your, your boots are staged a certain way so you can get into them as fast as possible, or, you know, you have some puffy pants or some other piece of kit that you need to throw on. That's like kind of like a ready room in your tent. Right. But the bigger, the bigger thing really is to, um, and this goes back to like pre nine 11 stuff that, you know, you and I were used to is, um, not getting caught in the first place. That's right. Right. That's going right. back to these long, long, uh, transit, long duration events where we would go, you know, sneaky around and, and not really get caught because we're, we're out there by ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the sound of it got easy cause you, you know, helicopters, right. And mobility, but even then the bad guys started learning when they hear helicopters, you know, they, they react. They've, they've mod- the bad guys have modified their tactics to our tactics. Oh, right? of course. So it's just, it's just better if they don't hear shit, which means we're, we're humping a hell of a lot longer. I think it's what three to five clicks away is the, you know, test studies where, you know, the bad guys can't hear the, the helos, depending on the kind of helicopter too. Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we got UAVs, we ended up with air, air assets and all these things that really changed the battlefield, right. Compared to, pre nine 11 when we were out there for four days and the, yeah. the bees, yeah. the, if you remember the bees still trying to steal all our water. 
Oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, four, four days in the desert and uh, all our water is being like swarmed by bees. <laughs> yeah, I totally forgot about that. Holy yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you know, you're in a bad situation when the bees are stealing your fucking water. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. That's funny. Um, damn. Yeah. So you got a lot of knowledge now of this winter warfare stuff. Um, you know, is there a, I mean, what else is kind of like part of this? I remember, I don't know if it's old or, you know, not to get into tactics, but I always, people would always ask like, you know, in a jungle, you know, if somebody's following you, it's very difficult to hide your trail in a jungle. And I compare the jungle much like to snow. It's very difficult to hide your trail in the snow, especially if you're talking about, you know, you know, 22 swinging dicks fucking tromping through the snow. It's not like you can the last man can use a broom and just hide all that. Right. Sure. Uh, is there has there have we got, gotten anywhere with that or are you just leaving trails? Uh, yeah, I mean, the right. Like without it just many, is what it is, many, right? Too many details. I mean, you know, think about some weather factors that may may aid in your ability Trans- to hide trails, right? Or tracks. Um, so you're just planning. You're going to have to really look at the weather and plan around it and let the weather become your friend is what you're saying. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I knew the only really, fuck, if you thought you were being followed in a jungle, was you would just do that long fucking like hook. So, and then you kind of come back on it and then you're just going to have to shoot whoever's fucking following you. Right. Right. So there you hope that they're, they didn't, you know, you basically do a button hook. I mean, I think I saw it in, I forgot what fucking movie it was, but you know, they, you, you do this really, really big U-turn. And then hopefully if the people that are following you haven't passed the point in which you decide to ambush them, but they think you're still going straight because they haven't gotten to the big, the U-turn yet. Right. It's like a, sure. it's an old tactic, you know, Vietnam, but I'm well, assuming, yeah. you know, in the snow. And anyone that's, um, anyone that has any kind of tracking capability, right there, it really, all you're doing is buying yourself time, whether it's the jungle, the winter environment, like you're just buying yeah. yourself time. And right. as, to your point, you're just like, Hey, I want to see, that person and have the the upper hand prior to um having to make a decision or having them yeah. find out where we're actually at right fuck yeah there's, there's some things that can change with technology and then there's other things you just gotta you still gotta have good field craft and experience and knowledge in order to win against our adversaries over there and that's like a perfect example right you can't hide your fucking tracks you can you, and you can't count on mother nature to do it for you even though you might plan around it because we all know how that goes sure so yeah you've become quite the winter warfare expert no doubt about it man that's pretty cool and uh i think it's going to be even more important um as russia and some of our adversaries decide to uh you know start fucking with people so um and you i think i couldn't think of a better guy training uh special operations guys like you are uh i can't think of anybody better to be doing it obviously you've got all the experience with the mountaineering now you got the winter piece and i mean hell and you're an expert in these uh skiing and snowboarding and crazy ass conditions that uh most people don't live in an environment to be able to hone their skills like you do. And now you live in it. You live and breathe it all the time, which is also another kind of shows. Uh, not only I, I'm pretty sure you moved to Montana because it's beautiful and it's a cool state, 
but at the same time, you also did it because it lends to what you want to do in your next life. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate that. It's, um, right. Like, uh, kind of set my sights on, I got all this really cool experience in the military. And then I thought, man, I need to professionalize this commercially. And, um, and, and I'm really happy with kind of the road I'm headed down here and, and yeah. be able to, you know, maintain a touch point with the community and stuff like that. Like that, that's pretty Heck special. Yeah. It is cool, man. You know, some of us like me, I was like, okay, I'm done with the military. I'll probably sprint away from it, <laughs> you know, and be, do something completely different. But you know, what's funny is you really don't, we all end up somehow, some way gravitating back to, you know, paralleling our careers in some form or fashion, you know, it's, it's just okay. kind of funny how it happens. I think you just, we just don't know any better. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, all right. So ne what's next? I mean, you've, you've got all this under your belt, you've got all these certifications and degrees and the, on the avalanche side. I mean, so what's your future look like now? Uh, so ne the next step here is I'm chasing, uh, some of my, guiding credentials right through the american mountain guide association um i'll start that i actually already started this past fall but i'm gonna you know pursue that full force um this spring uh, yeah and hopefully you know within the next year or so um i've taken at least the basic entry the entry level um you know guiding course uh which is kind of the first step to getting certified as a international mountain guide yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, the American Mountain, they're kind of like the premier certification to get right through those folks. Yeah, so within the United States, right, the American Mountain Guide Association is kind of the representing body for the U.S. Mm. in professional guiding industry. And um, they became a member of the International Federation Mountain Guide Association uh, a number of years ago, a couple decades ago. And um, so the only way to really be recognized as an I IFMGA guide is through AMGA accreditation or credential. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So to get to the international, you got to have the U.S., which makes sense. I yeah. mean, that's like with everything. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool, dude. And then uh, you're going to continue uh, teaching special operators special things? Uh, you know, I, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, if we get opportunity to do that stuff again, that would be a lot of fun. And certainly tweaking things, you know, to refine training schedules and accommodate, um, you know, a phased approach where, Hey, here's your one oh one uh, basic, you know, introduction to living in this environment or working in this environment. Here's your two Oh one where we ramp up, maybe complicate the travel scenarios and those kinds of things. And uh, three Oh one where we really challenge folks, but there needs to be probably a high level of proficiency, right. To, to, to safely um, mitigate, the hazards of this environment for yeah yeah no doubt i mean this is cross-country skiing too by the way right it's not yeah or is it a little bit of everything i mean a little bit of everything yep we had guys okay. uh traverse an entire mountain range so they're using i mean the primary mode is i mean they're carrying snowshoes right they also have their cross-country skis they're probably putting socks on their skis in order to go uphill Right. Sure. I mean, are you, you're doing all that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a lot of work, man. So then they're carrying all their food and water, water. Oh, that's kind of the easy part out there, but food, I mean, that's, that's a lot of calories that they're burning too. Yeah. 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 So you got to do a lot of math before you uh, set foot 
a lot of planning lot lot of planning involved <laughs> yeah damn and then, and then things don't always go according to plan as you know so you know you can right. have to have some some contingency or some you know backup to the backup yeah no doubt and then on top of that i think it's important for people to know not only you got all this the gear that you need in order to survive the environment into you know transit the environment but you're also carrying all the things the military uh, want you to carry in order for you to do the damn operation. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's all your kit, right? right? That's your gun. That's your guns, primary, secondary, all your optics, all your specialized guys, like the sniper, the, the breacher, the, all the different, you know, jobs that a guy has, they're carrying all their special shit. Right. And the, videos, the, all the, you know, whatever communication, all the comms gear. Yeah. And then you got all the, uh, the medics, carrying full medical loadouts yeah i mean yeah, it, gets, it gets you know really complicated really quick right and so you got you have to dial all these things in before you even start to add all these operational requirements and so you see right the importance of like now i don't want it i just don't even want to get caught right I want yeah to, yeah yeah right because you're not going to have space for really anything else. I mean, there's only so much a man can carry. I mean, even just in normal operating environments, you're talking, you know, what? What do we weigh? We probably, you know, depending on the 50 to 100 pounds over our body weight already. Oh, right? Yeah. I mean, depending on what you're doing. So now in, in cold environments, it's probably the heaviest you'll ever weigh. I, right? I would suspect. Yeah. Yeah. Because just the just the gear to survive the environment itself plus the operational stuff man we will be right back after the break okay well you've survived a lot of stuff but i don't i don't think you're going to survive this podcast because we got to move into your hypothetical survival scenario are you ready are you ready to face this let's do it man i'm ready we'll see what happens <laughs> well we did build one that i think will benefit the listeners more than it'll benefit you mainly because I think you're going to add, uh, to the storyline a little bit here. So here we go. All right. So for this scenario, you are up on a mountain. Okay. Uh, not for work though. This is for pleasure. You're just kind of hitting that, uh, back country area on your own and just having fun. And you're going down an area that probably has never been, you know, traversed all that much. Okay? okay. And it's a little more dangerous because of all the unknowns when you're in the back country and there's nobody with you. So here we go. First question. Do you choose skis or do you choose a snowboard? Skis. Skis. Why, why do you go with skis over snowboard? Uh, you know, there, there are split boards, right? People can uh, split the snowboard in half, put skins on it, skin up a mountain, put it back together and, and snowboard down. And that's certainly an option, but I've been um, skiing for so long at this point that I don't know that I would want to deal with a snowboard. Plus, you know, skis tend to be a little more versatile if you run into flat sections, right? Along your route, a uh, snowboarder mm -hmm. typically has to take their stuff off or transition back to a split. Whereas a skier can, yeah, he's already in a split position and can manage the flatter sections easier yeah yeah i definitely have noticed that i mean anybody who's been to a resort um as soon as you hit the flats yeah you're cruising past all the snowboarders <laughs> but they're quickly catching up later on i mean those most of it is kids and they're fucking crazy on those damn things 
but I, yeah, I'm like you. I'd rather just have skis. It's yeah. just what I know better. Um, I'm not necessarily good at it, but I, I definitely know it better than a, a snowboard, even though a snowboard is what I learned. The first time to ever play in the snow for me was in Tahoe. And it was actually, I, I haven't done much of that when I was a kid. Um, so once I was in the Navy and we were doing uh, the uh, that joint fire course out mm-hmm. of Fallon, you'd drive down to Tahoe every weekend, you know, and, um, and ski. And uh, that's where I learned snowboarding. And then I learned skiing later. Where'd you learn? Uh, yeah, I, you know, like junior high, maybe I took a trip in elementary, right. Growing up in Colorado. And then oh, uh, yeah. by the time I was a teenager in high school through my twenties, I snowboarded for like a solid decade. Right. Like, cause that's what it, I mean, that was cool in the nineties. I mean, that was right, right. like snowboarding was really cool in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, I transitioned back to skiing cause at the time split boards weren't really a thing. Uh, they weren't quite around yet. And to go into like bigger mountain ranges, right? Like the Himalaya or, or other big mountain ranges to go to, um, to get to any kind of base camp or advanced base camp, pe- most people were on skis. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. And so I went Gotta back know. to skis, yeah. I don't know, mid mid to early 2000s and, and, and then never looked back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just think they're, yeah, you can do a lot more with skis. It just seems like. Um, okay. So, yes, you are correct. Either answer would have been correct because this is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. So if you would have picked snowboard, you'd still would have been correct because you're just we're just let, letting you pick uh, your your tool, right? Great. And one, one will benefit you. The other won't. So, um, yes, skis. Good job. Um, so just curious. Uh, okay, so now, the, uh, now that you've selected your mode of transportation to go downhill – you're about to hit, you know, this this backcountry area. So next, do you, A, do a real quick dummy check and make sure you haven't forgotten any of your supplies that you may need, or B, hydrate with a little water before hitting the slopes? <laughs> They're uh, both kind of important. They're both really important, actually. I know, they are important. But which one? Which one are you going to pick, though? Well, I'm going to say I'll, I'll hydrate before I descend or start moving. Oh, yeah? Is that your final answer? Yeah, I'll go with okay. that. And I'll t- can I tell you why though? Yeah, well, let's see if you got it right or wrong. Oh, okay. okay, hold on. So, uh, yeah, do the dummy check or hydrate. You picked hydrate, and yes, the the choose your adventure has a. You do a dummy check, make sure you got all your gear. But yes, go into the explanation because I agree. Well, I, you There's... know, I mean, I would say um, certainly they're both important, but I have already done the dummy check before I even hit the, leave the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're not going to do it once you're out there on the mountain. No, at that point it's too late. So I'm, I'm going to double check that stuff before I ever actually leave the, from the car. Cause maybe there's something important sitting in the car I can grab if I conduct that check yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is there any checks that you do once you know, okay, now I'm going downhill. I'm at the top. Are there any quick checks that you do before you uh, before you actually kind of get into it and having fun? Yeah, I, I mean, I make sure my zipper zippers are all closed, right? So that if I yeah. do eat it or whatever the case is, I don't get <laughs> pockets full of zippers that are, uh, you know, pockets full, yeah, of pockets full of water. Yeah, yeah, and then melts <laughs> and turns into a shit show. So right, yeah. I notice just in you know the recreation side. I, yeah, I do the same thing. I zip zip everything up. 
I zip everything up, up even the, my main zipper up to my neck because I don't want any snow getting in there either. Yeah. Um, and then cell phone, like I'm like, where is that thing? You know, yeah. uh, you know, gloves are in place. The the pole retention loops are around my wrists. You know, my goggles are on. My fucking helmet's good because I know I'm going to eat shit, right? So it's like <laughs> I have I'm I'm the guy that has to make sure I have a checklist before I get started because inevitably I'm going to uh, you know cross skis and fucking endo you know with my teeth contacting snow before any other part of my body (laughs) so another important thing right you mentioned your helmet make sure that thing's strapped because if you have ever seen a helmet that's not strapped once it bounces off your head noggin and hits the snow where does it go i mean it's right gone yeah it's gone it's It's gone gone. sliding sliding down the slope No, that's a good point. Yep. So, yeah, you do your checks, you hydrate, even though you got that wrong. That's okay. It's minus 10. You, you have to get a 70 or higher in order to pass. Wait, what uh, did I lose points on? You, you lost point. You, you hydrated instead of checking all your gear before you oh, went down the mountain. Oh, I thought that was correct. Okay. That was <laughs> no, not according to the producers. You're wrong, even though you're the expert. <laughs> and they, they live in L.A., but you're, you're, but you're wrong. Okay. Fair. Moving on. all right so um rolling along here you make sure that you check all your supplies that you need before you head down the hill zippers are zipped and all that good stuff and one of the items is your avalanche transceiver okay so do you a attach the transceiver to your body or do you put it in your pack where do you put it oh that thing is uh, attached to my body attached to your body he says let me see what it says Yes. Attached to the body. A is correct. Now, why is that? Because, you know, your pack could get ripped off, you know, and like riding out an avalanche, it can be an incredibly violent scenario, right? Like um, coming over the top of the falls on like a big wave or something is a way to, you're like in a washing machine, right? And so, you know, you can lose shit off your body, your pack, your skis, um, so generally you wear, you want to wear an avalanche, uh, beacon or transceiver just over the top of your lowest layer or your base layer, just over the top of your base layer. Okay. That makes sense. So under, under and, my jacket, under my puff jacket, you know, and over. Oh uh, yeah. 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 So for people listening, you don't, I mean, there's a layer system if you're doing it right in cold weather, uh, you've got your base layer, which most people refer to as their long johns or whatever. Right. Yeah, totally. Yep. So that's your top and bottoms closest to your skin. Then on top of that, you have insulation of some sort, right? That's like a puffy jackets or fleeces and stuff like that. And then you have your shell. I mean, I'm talking basics. I mean, I know that, heck, at one point we had like a six layer Pepsi system in the SEAL teams, right? Remember yeah. that? Yeah. Um, that Mark Twight, I think, invented who started CrossFit. You know, most people don't know that he was a Alpine fucking stud before he was, you know, the the founding partner in CrossFit. And, uh, and I remember he came to seal team three. I had, did you bring him? Somebody, somebody had, had a, a relationship with him. Yeah. And he came to team um, three and we did a course with him, right? We did indeed. Uh, Chris Robinson brought uh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to seven to talk about, uh, some just mountain mobility stuff. And, and I went and attended that little, you know, discussion and he ended up talking about a really good friend of mine that, that had recently died and so um, we talked a little bit more about it afterwards and eventually that led to a discussion about like doing some training together and yeah just finished working with uh natick 
or whatever developing that clothing system that's right yeah, yeah. and it was it was we say pepsi it sounds like the soft drink but it's an acronym uh that, that one escapes me i don't yeah i don't recall it was, what that one was for right but it's a it was a you know a layer system and uh, of course we all love our gucci type gear so i think it was all patagonia right or i can't remember the brand at the time yeah i think probably a it lot was pretty of, high it was, uh, it was pretty high end yeah it was yeah. super high end yeah it was cool um anyway if you guys want to check the code you know mark twight you know he 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 fan he founded uh crossfit with Gla- glassman um they since separated and now you've got Jim Jones, I think, out of Utah is Mark Twight now. But if you didn't know, he he would basically pack a little Ziploc of fucking berries and nuts and then run up a mountain and expect you to keep up. And it was like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? But he is a he's a stud, you know, yeah. cardiovascularly where where there's zero oxygen. <laughs> yeah, he was right? phenomenal, phenomenal athlete way ahead yeah. of his time in regards to some of the um you know alpinism objectives that he took down in the in the late 90s i mean yeah people weren't doing stuff like that till a decade later when like uli steck and alex honnold came around right like i mean he way ahead of his time yeah yeah most people don't give him that credit so i'm glad that came up because he deserves it guy's a fucking animal um okay so back to the uh back to your scenario that uh you're not failing but you know you're coming close already (laughs) you've missed one and you've only got 10 okay so um yeah you're gonna put that transceiver next to your body because your gear can get separated from you and you don't want people rescuing your gear they want you want them rescuing you which is probably you know the easy way to remember it um so now you get on the slopes okay uh, you're headed down the mountain when, of course, an avalanche occurs and literally walls of snow uh, that are gaining on you from behind. OK, it's like it's in slow motion, even though we know that's not how it's going to go. So you see it coming. All right. Do you a compress yourself right into a little ball so that you can be more di- aerodynamic? OK, and get down the slope faster right like straight up like you know what you see dudes in the olympics do you got your ski poles under your under your armpits your head yeah. down your chin is like right next to your knees and you're just flying right you're going to race mother nature or b move to the flanks and try to basically get perpendicular uh to the to the to this wall of snow coming down uh and hopefully get to a flank a or b i i'm absolutely going to move to a flank <laughs> <laughs> yes and in uh I'm, I'm and is there anything you want to add to that because i'm guessing you know you know sure i mean you know generally uh, you know uh avalanches can can exceed speeds of 100 miles an hour right so you know your yeah. odds depending on the avalanche you're right. just not gonna out ski it right um yeah the other thing is i want to get out of the path of the avalanche because for maybe there's trees down below so you know, if I get caught up in that thing, it could ring me through the trees. Um, 25% of avalanche victims die of trauma, roughly. Yeah, they get, they get slammed into a tree, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not the up. tumbling in the snow as much as it is just, you know, getting your body sure. fucking crushed. Right? Sure. I either, you know, carried over cliffs or push through, you know, bang through the trees. So you definitely yeah. move off to the flank, try to get out of the path, grab a tree or whatever, you know, grab it, something, try to self-arrest. 
on the bed surface and let the moving snow move past you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough situation, right? Um, but yeah, B, you got that correct. Good job. Uh, snow is 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 going to be funneled down a mountain. Obviously, you want to get outside the funnel, uh, potentially you know, carrying less momentum. And if you ever, I mean, you know this, avalanche science, but correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, the, the, the flanking or outskirts of an avalanche are far less violent than like in the center. So it's a difference between, you know, that big wall hitting you or or like ankle biters, if you will, on the outskirts, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, right, everything gets funneled into the slide path, which yeah. typically, you know, a lot of times is a gully shape. So certainly the center of, you know, that could be way worse than the flanks of it. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> so now the mass of snow is about to come. It's rushing up behind you. You know, you're screwed, right? So do you A jam your ski poles into the ground and try and stabilize yourself or B grab a tree. Ooh. <laughs> well, I just mentioned both those. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Which one's the better one? Whichever one works. Um, I'm going to say, you know, I'll say reach for a tree, you know, try to grab a tree. Yes. Yeah. That's what we put as the answer. Good job. Mainly the reason on this end, you know, the, us novices putting together these scenarios is basically in, in the research in, that I put into a hundred deadly skills survival edition has like the illustrated basics to surviving an avalanche. And, you know, the oncoming rush just it becomes unavoidable. And so grabbing that solid something, you know, it could be, which is usually a tree is really the only solid thing you have out there to grab um, is going to be far better than the poles, which aren't really solid. They're not rooted into the earth. Um, is there any other reason, you know, besides that or, um, I mean, cause we've seen avalanches pull trees, right? I mean, right out of the ground. Sure. So sure. it's, I um, think what you said no, is, I mean, Hey, whatever works. Yeah. Whatever works. I mean, if you can grab a hold of a tree and, and hang on to it, uh, that you know that's great or um you know put yourself on the back side of maybe a larger tree that depending on the size of the avalanche that you know hopefully wouldn't break the tree i have seen uh looking through some avalanche debris last season you know whole trees get broken off and because uh you know a wet slide for example has so much mass behind it because the, the in, you know snowpack is wet and it just entrains anything in its path it's just like yeah. a locomotive like you just can't stop it doesn't just stop right and so um certainly something to be mindful of but i i yeah grab a tree if you can hit something with your in, tip of your pole and maybe self-arrest but i don't know i don't have any statistics on how many cases people have actually you know done that and been successful so, and survived it yeah yeah i know that uh i hiked around uh just after an avalanche in taos you know and hiked the whole back area where where it came down and one thing i noticed was all the trees weren't necessarily pulled out of the ground they snapped about you know i don't know what the line is maybe that's the snow line but it was about at the you know three two or three feet up all of them were snapped perfectly the same all laying in the same exact direction so that tells me if you're going to get behind a tree get behind it and get low whereas without knowing that i would have said get behind a tree and maybe go high so that you get away from the rush below but if you go high and the tree snaps then you're screwed right yeah you're getting 
crushed by the tree <laughs> yeah yeah but you know you think oh no i'll go up the tree and then the snow you know but it's until you see how easy that snow snaps all those trees like they're little sticks i mean it's like oh, nothing. Yeah. it's amazing it is so get behind a tree or hold a tree and get maybe get down kind of low huh yeah i, I mean just grab grab what you can grab and hope it holds up yeah. to the to the snow coming past it yeah i gotcha okay um when the oncoming rush uh becomes unavoidable grabbing onto a solid fixture like a tree you can reach and and help keep um from being swept away uh by a ditching your pack skis your ski poles and excess gear or b tie yourself to the tree using the straps of your backpack so which Um. is the uh (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll go with a, ditching ditching your gear right ditching gear because yeah. it avoids drag right let's yeah. see what this says hey yes you got it right which i'm guessing is completely wrong though no not at all uh no that's right okay yeah, yeah. i mean i i generally you know don't don't ski in the backcountry with my wrists through the loops on the ski poles because that stuff just acts like anchors and drags you down. Same with your skis. Like I want my skis to pop off because those can just get drugged down and act as anchors and, and potentially bury you deeper. Okay. So is there any tricks to the, the, the boot ski relationship so that they stay on for skiing, but pop off easy in case of emergency? Is there anything other than making sure they're just barely holding on? I mean, is there well, anything else you can do? I mean, do? I don't want them barely holding on either. Right. If I, Right. aggressive line you know you have your your din setting which is the the setting that your bindings will release at given um torsional pressure on your boot so yeah you know you don't want to over crank it because that could lead to like knee injuries or something if they don't release um in an avalanche i would suspect that it's oftentimes yeah. violent enough that they're gonna release right they're just getting ripped off yeah 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 Okay. So, yeah, you ditch the gear so that you have less objects that basically serve as anchors um, or drag uh, and that could be caught up in the rush of the snow um, or, even worse, accidentally impale you. Um, You're getting rid of all these, you know, potential missiles and rockets that uh, could hurt you. Uh, the rush is now becoming, you know, obviously really, really strong, and you, you're losing your grip on the tree. Now, this is all in seconds, obviously. <laughs> this whole time frame is in a matter of seconds. So do you, A, try to climb the tree, or B, start the swimming motion to stay on top of the uh, the avalanche? Sure. I mean, at this point, if you're uh, if you're losing your grip on the tree, I'm going to say you're not you don't have the wherewithal or strength to climb it. So I'll say let's go with the swimming motion to try to stay on top. All right. Let's see what it says. Yes. B swimming motion to stay on top. Now, is that do they still teach that or is that real? Like try to get big and stay on top rather than you know, being in the bottom of it or. Yeah. I mean, that's still discussed, right? Like try to kind of, it's kind of like floating down a river. Right. And so I kind of, I want to, you know, roll over feet downhill so I can push off uh, of objects as opposed to head first and, you know, yeah, yeah. really on my back so I can see and try and try and stay on the surface. Right. And so same kind of concept behind a, an avalanche airbag, if you will. Right. So larger, objects tend to rise to the surface and so that that avalanche airbag is 
in essentially making you a larger object and that can help uh, either with like a partial just a yeah, partial burial or a, a keep you on the surface of the snow gotcha yeah that's good to know man um so now as you swim with the rush it starts to become overwhelming it, it continues to just get more and more <laughs> it's just getting worse for you okay so do you a keep your arms at your side or b put your arms or hands in front of your face oh yeah front of your face front of your face well, uh and i'm pretty sure you're right yes you're right why is that uh because you want to you want to protect your face you also as that avalanche is going to come start to slow down right i also want to try to maybe provide or create uh, a little air pocket right there so, it is yeah you know i said 25 percent of people die from trauma the other uh, 75% or 70% of victims die of asphyxiation, right? And so basically they're they're buried under the snow, they're breathing, they create this little ice mask and uh, essentially they, they don't get any more uh, oxygen, right? So they melt yeah. the snow in front of them and they can't, they just keep, you know, breathing uh, their own That's right. breath. I gotcha. There you go. If you, uh, yeah, if you find yourself in avalanche or anytime you're just getting buried, you want to protect your face and create an air pocket uh, that you can that you can use. And plus, having your hands up near your head makes it easier to get your hands above your head and punch through the surface and signal for help. Whereas if your hands are down your side, it's really hard. I mean, if if you've ever gone out on a beach and buried yourself uh, when you were a kid in the sand or buried each other. You, it's you can't get you can't move your arms if you get buried in a certain position but if sure. they're already you want to basically put yourself in a position of success uh to to surviving and that's uh, definitely it hands up um okay so uh you're about to get buried in the snow moving breathing becomes very difficult like you said suffocation is like right there it's intimate um and by placing your hands in front you 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 uh, prevent yourself or at least help prevent suffocation. Um, all right. So do you a uh, dig in the direction in which your head is facing or B use some, su use your senses to determine which way is up. Um, I mean, I'm going to say, can you read a again? <laughs> Just dig in the direction in which your head is facing. No, B, I'm going to say it's the other one. Um, yeah. And yeah. a couple comments on that. You know, yeah. one, once you're, once you're buried, um, once that snow comes to a stop, we've just generated a lot of movement, right? Which generates a lot of heat. That snow is going to set up and like cement, and you're not going to be able to do anything, to be quite honest. Um, or very rarely are you going to be able to move around at all. Um, so I would say, you know, what, you know, one thing you can do to try to determine which way is up is you could spit Yep. in front of you. Right. And your spit's going to go down. So, um, that could give you an idea of indication of which orientation you're buried in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the part that definitely people, uh, you just don't know, you know, it's an education thing. You get buried, you don't know which way is up and, even in the book, I put, hey, if you can get to a lighter, you know, you see which way the flame goes. But like you said, the reality is you may not get to it. So it, your indicator of which way is up may be the fact that you've got snot running down your forehead. 
totally. instead of running down or it's running down your left cheek instead of your right or it's uh, it's going to go the snot's going to run with gravity and then you want to go the opposite direction of your snot um, because that's probably the only way you're going to know what's going on um, yeah there you go you got that right so uh, another way to determine oh yeah we already covered that so after determining which way is up do you a uh, try and punch an air channel from your face you know upward or try to get upside down and kick the snow above you <laughs> yeah. um, gosh. we know we already know one of those is pretty difficult to do the other one's a little easier sure um oh, that's a tough one there clint because certainly my legs have more power right yeah but if i've if i've done what we've right if i'm here i might be in a better position to to do this yeah mm -hmm. yeah gosh i'll go with i'll go with the hands and the screen says, yes, punch an air channel from your face upward or uh, in the direction in which you think the surface is. And yes, that is correct. And Zach, you uh, you have survived this podcast yeah. with a uh, you only missed one. So, yeah, you did good. You got 90 percent. That's really good, actually. I mean, the last couple of folks got 70. So you're doing great. Um, but I expected you to get a hundred considering this is like your fucking profession. So I don't know what that says. <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. You did a really good job. So, you know, I don't know if you're in a place yet, but, um, where can people find you or get a hold of you? Let's say a listener happens to be in the military and they want to hire you or your team, uh, to come teach some of this winter warfare stuff or maybe you know it's uh outside magazine just wants to uh interview and write a whole big article about you and we got all kinds of people listening to this thing so where would they how would they get a hold of zach armstrong yeah um you can check out my webpage at uh zach z-a-c-h 5326.com and there you and go contact info is right in there yeah so zach not with the k right so Z-A-C-H-5326.com. Yep. And it, there's a profile, you know, some of my previous uh, work through the Avalanche Science Program and some other, you know, qualifications, some military uh, qualifications and contact information. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, it, it's obviously awesome to have you on the show. Uh, having one of my best buddies on here to chat is always fun. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your day and uh keep keep up the good work keep up uh doing what you're doing it's been cool to watch and be a part of your transition so i'd say you're well ahead of most people uh so kudos to you you know because some people man they just they wait to the last minute and to start planning their transitions and then they uh you know then they fall into you know all these dark worlds of depression and whatever else and uh sure. You know, you and I know guys who've done that. Uh, so I'm always applauding guys when they set their transition up and actually commit to it and do it because uh, they're they're better off for it, you know. Um, so good job on that, buddy. Uh, there you go, everyone. That's Zach Armstrong. Check him out at Zach5326.com. He's also got some social media. I think I'm following him. So uh, if all else fails, you go look at who I'm following and follow there from there. And uh, like I always say, keep it simple, 
because uh, crisis will complicate the rest. And that's it for now. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.